You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 230, The Sullivan Expedition. Over the summer and fall of 1779, the Continental Army in concert with the New York militia, embarked on a campaign of destruction against the Iroquois. It became known as the Sullivan Expedition after the commanding officer, General John Sullivan. The goal of the expedition was to wipe out the remaining Iroquois villages in upstate New York that had been supporting raids against the settlers. The Americans had already gone on a similar mission against one of the Iroquois tribes, the Onondaga, This new campaign focused primarily against the Seneca and Cayuga tribes, the two westernmost tribes in the Confederacy. The Mohawk had already largely been displaced, and the Oneida and Tuscarora were mostly allied with the Americans. The Seneca was the largest of the Iroquois tribes, making up nearly 50% of the entire Iroquois Confederacy. Seneca land on the western part of the Iroquois Confederacy had historically faced the brunt of most warfare, leading to a reputation of the Seneca as being particularly ferocious warriors. The Continental Congress's Board of War had proposed a similar campaign for 1778, with Horatio Gates leading the assault, and including the capture of Fort Detroit. Gates, however, was never able to get the resources, and never really even began efforts to execute such an expedition. The Iroquois, under leaders such as Joseph Brandt and Cornplanter, and with loyalist support from leaders like John Butler and his son Walter Butler, conducted regular raids throughout upstate New York and northern Pennsylvania, including what became known as the Wyoming Valley Massacre and the Cherry Valley Massacre. These raids were designed to force settlers to withdraw from the area and to return those lands to the Iroquois who would continue to operate under crown protection from Quebec. Iroquois and Loyalists killed or captured numerous settlers, destroyed property and food, hoping that the settlers would move to safety, further to the south and east. Now, the settler population did decrease, but many remained living near one of the many numerous small forts that were built to defend against the constant threat of raids and surprise attacks. Those settlers who lived in harm's way appealed to the state government and to the Continental Army for protection and assistance against these attacks. Washington had discussed the Iroquois problem at length with the Continental Congress during his visit to Philadelphia over the prior winter. Initially, Gates was again offered command of the expedition in 1779, but he declined. Washington then turned to General John Sullivan. Sullivan by this time was a reliable veteran of several campaigns, most recently the assault on Newport, Rhode Island. 
In May 1779, George Washington gave orders to General Sullivan to assemble an army of annihilation. Quote, the expedition you are appointed to command is to be directed against the hostile tribes of the six nations of Indians with their associates and adherents. The immediate object are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more. I would recommend that some post in the center of the Indian country should be occupied with all expedition with a sufficient quantity of provision whence parties should be detached to lay waste to all settlements around with instructions to do it in the most effectual manner that the country may not be merely overrun but destroyed. But you will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruinment of their settlements is effected. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them. So Washington made very clear here he was not just talking about attack against hostiles. He was talking about wiping out all of the Indian settlements in the region that might be able to provide even the slightest aid or support for any enemies going forward. And in doing that, they were to destroy the towns, destroy their food, destroy everything, and force them to flee the area. Now, the plans in this case called for a three-pronged attack. General Sullivan would assemble an army at Easton, Pennsylvania, and move up the Susquehanna River. Sullivan's Continentals included New Hampshire and Massachusetts regiments under the command of General Enoch Poor the New Jersey Brigade under William Maxwell, and Pennsylvania regiments under General Edward Hand. A second force under Brigadier General James Clinton would move down from Otsego Lake down the Susquehanna to meet up with Sullivan at Tioga. A third division under Colonel Daniel Broadhead would leave Fort Pitt in Pennsylvania, moving north into western New York. Eventually, the plan called for all three American armies to merge and attack Fort Niagara. However, the main goal, as I said, was to destroy all enemy towns and villages and to kill or capture any members of hostile tribes that they encountered. Washington had hoped that the armies would begin marching in the spring. General Sullivan delayed as he called for more food and supplies to support his army of over 3,000 men while they were on the march. Sullivan arrived in Easton on May 7th. He remained there for about six weeks before leaving in mid-June. He marched north for a few days before reaching the Wyoming Valley, where he camped and awaited more supplies. Sullivan complained that the food shipped to his army was moldy or otherwise inedible, supplies of clothing were inadequate, even the cattle were so weak that they couldn't walk. Sullivan also complained that he still didn't have enough men. Even though 3,000 was a large number, Sullivan had to leave behind men to guard his rear, meaning his forces would already be depleted before they could reach the enemy. He had been promised another 750 Pennsylvania Rangers who never arrived. Sullivan even bypassed Washington to write directly to President John Jay about his concerns. Finally, Sullivan departed Wyoming for New York on July 31st. 
By that time, he was so laden down with supplies that his soldiers complained that it was nearly impossible to get all the wagons through the wilderness trails. The delay also meant that any element of surprise was lost. British General Frederick Haldimand in Quebec had received reports about Sullivan's armies. Fortunately for the Americans, he did not send any forces to engage. Haldeman believed that the Americans would move to assault Fort Niagara and then march into Quebec. So the British mostly reinforced their defensive positions in Canada and awaited that attack. As Sullivan's army made his way up the Susquehanna, they found abandoned Indian villages, which they pillaged and burned. Although the Indians could not assemble the numbers to challenge this Continental Army, they did make their presence known. On July 15th, they killed and scalped one man and wounded another who were driving horses to the army. Two days later, they killed and wounded two more. Soldiers had to stay on alert at all times and keep together as much as possible. Several other soldiers died of heat exhaustion or drowning during this difficult march. By mid-August, Sullivan had reached his first goal, Tioga. There, they built a fort with a stockade. As Sullivan awaited the arrival of General Clinton's division, he sent a scouting party to the Indian village of Chemung, about a dozen miles to the north. The scouts reported several hundred Indian warriors were there. So, Sullivan took the bulk of his army to surround the village, but by the time they got there, they found it deserted. The Indians had abandoned the village to the superior force. The Continentals then burned the 40 houses in the village as well as the crops growing in the field. General Han led a brigade further north in search of the Indians. He ran into an ambush, but with much larger numbers, quickly overwhelmed his attackers. The natives abandoned the attack after killing seven Continentals and wounding 13 more. General James Clinton had assembled his force of about 1,600 Continentals and militia at Otsego, near the modern-day town of Cooperstown. While he waited, he had his men dam the river, and then on August 9th, as he prepared to march, his men destroyed the dam, sending floodwaters down the Susquehanna. Clinton had built 200 small boats carrying his supplies, which rode those floodwaters downriver. The flooding, of course, at the same time, destroyed riverside villages and planting fields along the way. The soldiers marched behind the flooding river, burning and looting and destroying the villages that they found in their path. After about 10 days of marching, Clinton's forces met up with about a 1,000 men under General Poor that Sullivan had deployed in search of Clinton. The combined force marched back to Tioga, arriving on August 22nd. With Clinton's arrival, Sullivan had an even larger force of about 4,500 men under his command. Now, this new, larger army left camp on August 26th, leaving a small garrison at Tioga in the new Fort Sullivan. General Sullivan deployed his army in four divisions. Han's division took the lead, including three companies of riflemen under Colonel Daniel Morgan. Maxwell marched on the left flank and Poor on the right flank. Clinton's division marched in the rear. Movement was slow as the men worked their way through the wilderness. Moving ammunition wagons proved particularly frustrating. The soldiers had cut up their tents to make canvas bags so they could carry flour and other provisions on their backs rather than relying on wagons. As they approached the Iroquois village of Newtown, 
scouts reported that the enemy was concentrating forces there. Loyalist Colonel Walter Butler had combined his roughly 250 Butler's Rangers with a thousand-man force of mostly Seneca warriors sent by, and I apologize in advance for butchering this name, Sayen Kuata. Also with the group were other Iroquois under Joseph Brandt and Cornplanter. As Sullivan slowly assembled his army all spring and summer, the Loyalists and Iroquois tried to assemble an army to oppose them. But without the cooperation of British regulars, the best they could do was a force that was somewhere between a third and a fourth the size of the Continental Army. The Iroquois determined that they would make their stand just outside of Newtown. They built a redoubt at the top of the hill on the road leading to town, giving them a view of the approaching enemy. They also extended defenses in a U-shape down each side of the road inside the forest line. The hope was that the Continentals would approach the redoubt and begin battle. Warriors would then emerge against the rear of the column on both sides of the road, throwing the Continentals into chaos and panic. The Americans approached Newtown on August 29th. Using a common tactic, Iroquois warriors fired on the front of the column, then retreated quickly down the road. They hoped to get the Americans to chase after them, leading them into that larger ambush. These lead forces, however, under General Han, had spent a great deal of time at Fort Pitt dealing with Indians and suspected a trap. They had Iroquois scouts of their own, Oneida and Tuscarora and Stockbridge warriors, who predicted just such a trap. So instead, Han brought up a small number of field artillery to fire on the enemy redoubt from a distance. At the same time, the two flanking divisions attempted to move around the enemy and surround these Loyalist forces. One flank would attack first as a feint, drawing the warriors to that side. Then the other flank would strike the weakened side and hopefully roll up the enemy. It was a good plan, but it did not execute well. The wilderness terrain made the advancing slow and difficult. The Loyalists managed to see the trap unfolding in time to make their escape. So most of the Loyalist militia and Iroquois warriors escaped through a swampy area where the Americans did not follow. The end result was what could have been a major bloody battle ended up with casualties of a skirmish. Out of thousands engaged, the Loyalists suffered only 17 killed, 16 seriously wounded, and 2 captured. The Americans suffered 11 killed and 32 wounded. The bulk of the Loyalists and Iroquois escaped, ceding the field to the Americans, but suffering few battle casualties. The Americans then proceeded into Newtown, destroying all of the buildings, supplies, and surrounding fields. After the battle, the Loyalist forces were unable to regroup for another fight. So the Americans continued on their march unopposed, destroying more Iroquois towns and food supplies. Around the same time as the Battle of Newtown, Colonel Broadhead had left Fort Pitt and was marching up the banks of the Allegheny River into New York. Initially, command of this expedition was supposed to fall to General Lackland McIntosh. You may recall that McIntosh had been involved in much of the early war events in Georgia. After he killed Button Gwinnett, the president of Georgia, in a duel, Washington ordered McIntosh north to avoid any revenge attacks against him by Gwinnett allies. McIntosh spent the winter in Valley Forge, then had taken command at Fort Pitt, where he hoped to organize a campaign against Fort Detroit. 
By the spring of 1779, though, when the Sullivan expedition was getting put together, the British had captured Georgia, and Washington had to recall General Robert Howe and replace him with Massachusetts General Benjamin Lincoln. Washington decided that Georgia needed back its top officer in the Continental Army and sent McIntosh to serve under General Lincoln in the Southern Theater. So that left Colonel Broadhead in command at Fort Pitt. Initially, General Washington wanted to call off the offensive from Fort Pitt entirely. He wrote to Broadhead in April, ordering the colonel to remain at Fort Pitt and just be prepared to act against any Indian attacks against settlers in western Pennsylvania. You may recall that this was shortly after the Americans had abandoned Fort Lawrence in Ohio, mostly because of the hostile Indians there, the Mingo Indians, who were allied with their Seneca neighbors and were quite hostile at this point to the Western settlers and to the Continental Army in particular. As it turned out, though, following the capture of British Governor Henry Hamilton and the withdrawal of the Continentals from the Ohio area when they abandoned Fort Lawrence, the Pennsylvania frontier seemed to settle down. The violence continued, but only in relatively small and disorganized groups. Broadhead made use of local militia to pacify the area around Fort Pitt for miles, and he informed Washington of the success he was having. So by July, Washington responded, giving approval for a move northward, hoping that Broadhead's raid would add continued distraction for the Indians who were already facing Sullivan's offensive. Broadhead left Fort Pitt in mid-August with about six or 700 soldiers, including allied warriors from the Delaware tribes, as well as companies from Virginia and Pennsylvania regiments. Most of the Mingo had already received word of the Continental Offensive in this region and had fled their homes. Broadhead's men encountered multiple abandoned villages, which they burned along with the fields of growing food. The forward companies of the detachment did encounter a few dozen enemy warriors at Thompson's Island. There was a brief skirmish where perhaps five enemy were killed and a few wounded, This may have just been a large hunting party that they had stumbled across. That was really, though, the only resistance that Broadhead encountered. Broadhead continued his march of devastation, but never made it into New York. He returned to Fort Pitt via a different path, plundering and burning more native villages during his return. By the time he reached Fort Pitt in mid-September, his month-long expedition had leveled at least a dozen villages, The raiders also returned with plundered supplies that would sell for over $30,000. Although Broadhead's successful raid was relatively short, General Sullivan continued to rain destruction throughout upstate New York through most of September. Following Newtown, the army marched northward through the Finger Lakes region, continuing to plunder and destroy more villages. After Newtown, they did not even encounter even minor attacks against them. The warriors had had enough and retreated back toward Quebec. In late September, General Clinton's division moved east into Mohawk territory. They entered a village known as Tantantalago, which was populated by Mohawk Indians who had pledged to remain neutral. Not recognizing their neutrality, the Continentals ordered the male inhabitants arrested, and sent to Albany to be held in custody. Most of the soldiers involved were local New York soldiers under Colonel Peter Gansevoort. Many of them had friends or family who had been left homeless from prior Indian raids. 
the Mohawk farms at Teontalago were not burned. Instead, the Americans allowed dispossessed settlers to take over these farms in this relatively safe and secure region of the state. Buildings, horses, cattle, and crops were all made available to settler families who needed them. Now, this was one of the most highly controversial components of the whole expedition, because it involved confiscating property from the Indians who had broken with their fellow Mohawks in order to remain neutral. Some may have even performed services for the Patriot cause. Former Continental General Philip Schuyler, who had negotiated with these tribes years earlier, was outraged at this action against non-combatant people who posed no threat to the Patriots. Despite Schuyler's objections, the action stood. General James Clinton's brother, New York Governor George Clinton, allowed the Mohawk to be held at Albany for the winter and never returned any of their property to them. Overall, the Sullivan expedition was considered a success. Washington had hoped it would be capped off with the capture of Fort Niagara, but since Sullivan's army did not have any heavy artillery, this was never really possible. Most people in New York and New England approved of the effort to remove the Iroquois as a great victory. The Continental Congress, however, was less than enthusiastic. Sullivan's continued demands for more supplies and his going over Washington's head directly to Congress did not win him any friends in that body. Given the popularity among the people for the action, elected officials did not go after him directly, but neither did they give him much praise for his victory. The total warfare in upstate New York had its intended effect. By one estimate, the expedition had destroyed over 160,000 bushels of corn and leveled 40 Iroquois towns and villages. More than 5,000 Iroquois men, women, and children fled to Quebec, seeking assistance from the British. The British garrison at Quebec had nowhere near the resources to feed and house all these people. So, over the harsh winter of 1779 and 1780, hundreds of Iroquois died from starvation or exposure. Loyalist forces had lost access to friendly villages in New York. Future raids from Canada would become more difficult and would require carrying more of their own supplies. Although the raids would continue the following spring, the Sullivan expedition effectively broke the hold of the Iroquois over their traditional homeland in upstate New York. Only a few members of friendly tribes remained in the region. The Iroquois gave George Washington the nickname Conotalcorius, which means town destroyer. This nickname would apply to future U.S. presidents as well. Next week, the British in New York City continued to conduct raids on New Jersey, including one at Paulus Hook. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to my Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter, also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Kurt Avard. Thanks also to Paul Lepore for a one-time gift via PayPal. I've mentioned many times in this podcast how my Patreon supporters have helped me to cover the expenses of this podcast. Patreon is, of course, a play on the word patron, which means someone who supports the arts. In the Renaissance, artists used to rely on patrons, usually wealthy aristocrats, who would support the artist in the furtherance of creating art. Our modern model does not rely on one or two wealthy people, but instead on a group effort among many people to contribute to further a project, in this case, my podcast. Your support has allowed me to keep advertisements to an absolute minimum of host-read ads and only on topics that I think would really interest you. I've also avoided putting anything behind a paywall. All episodes are freely available to all. I even put out my transcripts and links for free, something my fellow podcasters usually think should be available to patrons only. I do this because I want everyone to enjoy this podcast, regardless of their ability to pay. And thankfully, you guys have come through for me. Your contributions have covered my costs, but I'm considering taking a very big step. Right now, I have a day job that's unrelated to history. Uh, That job takes about 50 hours of my week, often more. To produce a podcast episode, I usually really require at least 30 hours to research, write, record, edit, and distribute an episode. So if you're good at math, you can see that I'm really wearing myself ragged in holding down a full-time job and producing a podcast episode every single week. I'm starting to come to the conclusion that I just can't keep up this pace forever. I love this podcast, but my day job pays my bills. So in deciding how to deal with this, I'm turning to you, my listeners, to help me make that decision. One option is I can slow down my podcast and release fewer episodes each month. The other option is that I can quit my day job and devote myself fully to this podcast and probably put out even more content than I do now. To do the podcast full-time, I need your help. I've set a goal of 300 supporters on Patreon. If I can get 300 supporters, I promise to quit my day job and devote myself full-time to podcasting. Although even meeting this goal would mean a substantial pay cut for me, the show of support will be enough for me to take this leap of faith. So, if you want me to lean into this podcast and offer even more content, please consider supporting me on Patreon today. It's really easy. You just go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, Look up the American Revolution podcast and make a pledge of support. 
I really would appreciate if everybody could step up and make this happen. Okay, that's enough about my financial issues. Let's get back to the American Revolution. This week, we covered the Sullivan Expedition, or Sullivan Campaign as it's sometimes called, which can be a pretty controversial topic. A war on a civilian population and denying them the ability to feed and house themselves is a pretty harsh action. In most contexts today, this would probably be considered a war crime or a crime against humanity. But I have to say, though, I think it's always a bad idea to judge historical actions through the lens of modern ethical norms. You can do that, sure. But rather than judge, my goal at least is to understand why these events occurred, the historical context that prompted them, and the reason that pushed men to act in such a way. Some historians have tried to put the blame on historic acts like this on racism. I think there is much more going on here, though. For starters, this is not a blind attack on all Indians. Uh, While some neutral tribes and Indians were caught up in this attack, you have to remember that many of these neutral Indians were providing shelter and support to enemy raiders that were coming through their territory. So even though they were not a direct threat to the settlers, they were aiding and abetting those who were. Also, tribes such as the Oneida, who were allied with the Americans, were not subject to these attacks. So this was not an attack on all Indians, regardless of anything else. This notion of total warfare and starving out an enemy is also not something that the military limited to Indian tribes. For example, the Union Army used these very same tactics against the Confederacy during the Civil War. And for that matter, the Iroquois were attempting to employ much these same tactics against New York settlers in the years leading up to this expedition. When one's life, home, and family are at risk, people are willing to resort to extreme measures. And whether we like it or not, that's a reality of history. Although the Sullivan Expedition pushed the bulk of non-alloyed Iroquois out of New York and into Canada, it did not end the fighting. Over the next few years, Iroquois and Loyalist forces from Quebec would continue to raid upstate New York in an attempt to retake this land. They just didn't have locals to provide them with support. The Iroquois, though, continued to hope for British support so that they could at some point retake their homelands in New York. However, the British did not attempt to get the U.S. to recognize Iroquois rights to the land as part of the Treaty of Paris that ended the war. Instead, London simply threw the Iroquois interests under the bus and ceded the land to the United States. Iroquois, at least the ones who survived, were resettled on lands in Canada and lost their traditional lands in New York forever. General Sullivan, who fought this campaign with great determination and hardship, was really disappointed at Congress's tepid response to his successes. He ended up resigning his commission shortly after the expedition ended and returned home to New Hampshire. Once home, he was elected to Congress against his will and served only one term in Philadelphia. After that, he returned to New Hampshire, where he served in the state legislature and also was elected to several terms as governor. If you want to read more about the Sullivan campaign, and particularly the military aspects of it, my book recommendation is A Well-Executed Failure, The Sullivan Campaign Against the Iroquois, July to September 1779, by Joseph R. Fisher. This is a relatively short book, under 200 pages, 
but one that covers the campaign rather well. The book first came out in 1997. The author, Fisher, has taught military history at the U.S. Military Academy and at the United States Army Command and General Staff College. My online recommendation is a free online book called History of Sullivan's Campaign Against the Iroquois by A. Tiffany Norton. It was released in 1879 during the centennial of the expedition. And while it does cover these Indian wars in what I can only describe as a 19th century manner, I think it is full of a lot of good facts about the expedition and about the fighting in general. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org or use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week comes from Daryl Woodard, who asks, If Augustine Washington had lived, would George Washington have turned out differently? Well, Daryl, it's impossible to say with any certainty how George Washington's life would have been different if either his father, Augustine, or his brother, Augustine Jr., had lived much longer than they did. For starters, we know, though, that Washington would not have inherited Mount Vernon. That had been his father's estate, and it went to his brother, Augustine. George only inherited it once his brother and his brother's wife both died, and all of their children had died before they did. If Augustine had lived, George would have likely taken up residence on one of his other lands, and his total estate would have been much smaller. Now, without Mount Vernon and many of the other land holdings that he inherited from his brother, it's possible that Washington might not have even married Martha. He would have been a far less eligible suitor in terms of land and position. He probably still would have served in the Virginia legislature, but maybe not selected to attend the Continental Congress. Again, less land and less prestige equals less high-profile appointments. Without that appointment to Congress, he never would have become commander-in-chief, and without becoming commander-in-chief, he almost certainly would have never become the first president of the United States. Now, of course, all that is really just speculation and one possibility bending upon another. It's quite possible that owning a little less land, all those other things might still have happened. He still might have married Martha. He still might have gotten the appointment to Congress and gone on as history as we know it. It's really impossible to say what would have happened differently, but certainly this is one option. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, Quora, or other social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.